Hello, this is Let's Talk About It, conversations about domestic abuse. And I am Patricia McLean, founder of the Maine-based nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, which is breaking the silence of domestic abuse with survivors standing proud and speaking loud. I don't know how another human being belittled me enough to change my name, my clothes, my friends, my life. Well, I remember the first time very clearly. He was angry about um, something. He freaked out and he smacked me in the face. I mean, I cried, he cried, and he was like, I've never done that before. And of course I believed him. There's some days that were really good days and you have fun with that person and then they apologize and nothing happens for two weeks and they said that they were sorry and you think that everything's going to be okay and then it happens again. Everyone's attention was just focused on him all the time. I could have put up a fight and said, no, I'm going to go visit my mom for the day or no, I'm going to go out to dinner with my friends, but it wasn't worth what was going to happen if I pushed it. He never physically assaulted me, but, but he tortured me psychologically. It was one thing to throw things at me. It was one thing to call names, but you, like, he physically broke a body part. Oh, what a beautiful day that was. <laughs> Just freedom. Just like being reborn every day. You can wake up, you can breathe, you can go down and have a cup of coffee and sit by yourself and not worry if somebody's wondering who you're talking to, what you're doing, like, the ability to just sit there and just be free. My guest today is Jackie. Jackie is a singer-songwriter who, with her husband, Sean, forms the indie pop duo Roan Yellowthorn on Blue Elan Records. The music on this show is from the Roan Yellowthorn single, I'm Enough. Jackie is also my daughter. I broke my silence of 29 years of abuse five years ago. Jackie broke her silence also of 29 years of abuse a few months ago in her column for Atwood magazine about abuse by the same person. And now, let's talk about it. So this is our, is that our third attempt? Uh, at least, yeah. Been a little, this thing's been a little tricky. It has been difficult. I felt like for a while I, I was sort of walking on eggshells around the subject with you. So I think part of it is that, like, I'm just very self-conscious about what I ask you about. Oh, you don't have to worry about that anymore, though. Okay. I'm not, I'm not triggered by it anymore. I'm, 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 I've healed past that point. Wow. That's huge, isn't it? Yeah. That's a big change. But for a while, I definitely was not like really ready to, I wasn't really in a place where I could really talk about it that easily. There was like a time when I was trying to maintain a relationship with dad and, you know, he has this really like paranoid mentality. So it was like, I felt like I was really in, in the middle and I felt like 
if I expressed any like attention for one of you, then it would be like putting me even more in the middle of something. You've been feeling the middle for a long time. Yes. Do you think you've been in the middle for like all your life, would you say? Yeah, I feel like there haven't been until recently. I don't feel like there have been any kind of like boundaries. I feel like I've had to create those boundaries in a lot of ways. That's the other thing that happened, right? So that you became like the parent and I was the child because you comforted me a lot when, when you were growing up. I feel like I was always the parent. Yeah. When I was growing up, I was always worried about you trying to protect you and look out for you and, Mm -hmm. you know, had like intense anxiety that you were always going to disappear. Right. You know? And the other thing that happened in our family is I remember like sending you to your father sometimes when he was in like in a bad mood, because I knew that if you were cute, you know, your cute little girl self, that would cheer him up. Do you remember that whole dynamic? Well, I remember like, I felt like I was always responsible for everything. Right. It's just interesting to me too, because when I split from your father in that very dramatic way, yeah, it seemed to me that it was really obvious that he was the abuser and I was the victim. But to you, it seems like that dynamic was not as apparent to you or grow, and even growing up, like that we were fighting. You didn't really even you see it as he, he was the aggressor. No, I don't think that's true. I think it's just different experiences that we had. You know, like you and I had different experiences because like as a child in that situation, I saw both of my parents as like extensions of each other. You know, and because of the culture of our family, like you didn't really go against things that he said. So it was a unified, solid front in some, to some degree. Yeah, it felt that way a lot of the time, but I was like afraid of him. Right. You know, I wasn't like afraid of you, but when I was kind of like coming to terms with all of the abuse that did happen because of his behavior. I I went through a period where I was feeling pretty resentful about about like you know what I saw as um, not being protected by you and you know from those situations. Yeah. And is there anything I did that was can we say both helpful to resolve this and that didn't help to resolve it. Well, we couldn't really talk about, about dad, like before you guys got divorced. Right. So that was something that I wasn't able to talk with you about before. Right. And then once you did get a divorce, it became something that I could talk to you about. And then everything kind of like blew open, I think in terms of like, my experiences because I finally was able to kind of talk to you about them. I do remember though that a couple of times in the beginning, I I, I said I wasn't going to own that. Remember like when you told me that you felt that I had neglected you or you felt that I, as you said, that the resentments that you voiced to me for the first time. It's been a process, I think, but even, even when you were saying that, I think that was in the context of like a therapy session you wanted to try to like talk about stuff and make things better. And that, I think that was really important 
obviously you're a good person and you care about me. And that's not negated, you know, but that, that can be the case. And it can also still be the case that like, because of, because of the situation that was happening, I was like neglected in a lot of cases. What is your earliest memory of something feeling wrong in our family? Okay, I think that's a really interesting question because when you're born into a situation, it feels normal. Mm-hmm. Even if even if it's scary, you don't realize how wrong or or not normal it is until you're out of this out of the situation. That's so interesting to think about, you know, cuz I I got into it when I was 27, but I, mean, I can't even imagine being born into it. Because obviously I was so stressed out and nervous when, when I was pregnant with you. So it was transmitted even when you were in utero, Jackie. And I can't even get my head around that, what that must be like. As uncomfortable and like as anxiety provoking and whatever, all the things that you can say about it, as much as it was all of that, like it wasn't until, it was a process for me to realize that it wasn't normal. You know, it wasn't until I really like got out of the house that I even started to see like that it wasn't normal. Are you talking about high school? No, I'm talking about like college. I remember always being like afraid, very like intense, like like enough so that I felt like my life was like in danger. I think my earliest memory of feeling like really afraid was when I was like two or three maybe I was like really little and there was like something that was lost there was like a key that was lost yeah and I think that dad was like screaming at me like telling like asking me where it was like telling me that I lost it or something it was just in a drawer like I didn't I didn't even hide it so I like I hadn't I didn't know where it was and I remember just like feeling like so much like darkness and fear and like panic you know yeah but it was always that that feeling was always there you know what's so weird about that Jackie like I I sort of figured out at some point that he was so much like my mother Mm -hmm. and it's weird like you hear about like boys like they marry someone like their mother you know yeah but it I but my mother used to do that to me she used to terrorize us when we were little she'd get us up at like two in the morning to look for something like a pair of scissors or something. Isn't that weird? That is weird. And it's weird because from the outside we had such different circumstances, but it's weird that, that it could have been repeated. It's true. It was very different circumstances, but it was the exact same dynamic. We were just continuing the cycle. How did the anger and control from your father affect you physically and emotionally? Well, just when you say that question, it makes my heart go really fast. So I've had like a lot of, there's been a lot of like physical effects, I think. Like when I was little, you said I used to like projectile vomit. I remember six months old, you, yeah, you projectile vomit anytime we took a trip because your father was especially nervous and stressed out for any trips. Yeah. And so I, I had like, I think I had, OCD, like, and anxiety from a really early age. Because remember, I used to always make that, those noises. I used to make those noises. Oh, yeah, you used to make noises, yeah. And then when I was, like, 12, 
or something I I just like really fell into like a terrible period of like OCD yeah like debilitating and and I I think partially like I hid it from you both like I it was like very secretive in a way mm-hmm. but it also wasn't secretive because a lot of like other adults were like picking up on on things being not normal right so I feel like partially you guys didn't really notice and partially and then when it became evident that there was an issue like dad didn't want me to get help he wouldn't let you get therapy right or like medication which I like I was really in a bad way yeah and I remember I wanted you to go on medication and I felt like really like that was hard for me because I, I felt you really needed it, but I know that he just said no. He didn't want that. So I didn't, you know, I couldn't go up against that. You know, it just seemed impossible. Like, I think when people hear OCD, they think of like hand washing. Right. But it was like, I had so many like rituals and like compulsions that I was, I was like actually debilitated. You know, like every time I took a step I'd have to like swallow 10 times like every time I took a breath I'd have to hold it for like two minutes I would go as many days as I could without drinking water and I would like I I remember trying to hold my breath for like four minutes instead of like it would increase like first two minutes then three minutes then four minutes I was like trying to hold my Jackie for longer and longer and I like I wouldn't I didn't change my clothes for like months wow and like I would I would sleep like on top of the covers, like with all the windows open. Why? I was just like torturing myself. It was just like, I don't know. I was just doing more and more extreme things and also just being more and more debilitated. Like I couldn't function. Did you ever, did you ever think of asking someone for help, Jackie? I think part of it is like that literally nobody noticed. Like, you know, that was part of the problem. I think that was part of the neglect that I wouldn't have noticed that. Well, yeah, you know, like there was, it was, and maybe part of it was, was that I was wanting help. Yeah. But like the focus was so much on, was so much somewhere else, you know? And then I think the other thing is that there was such like a culture in our house of like secrecy. Right of not talking about what was wrong or not even acknowledging that something was wrong. Yeah. And then also I, I, I had kind of like a, a label on me from like a really early age of being like crazy and sensitive when there were things that were noticed. It was just like, Oh, Jackie's just crazy. It is evidence of the fact that you were very distracted. Like, what do you think your focus was on? You know, making sure that his mood stays stable and that nothing sets him off. Right. Just not wanting to set him off. That was the main thing. And also yeah. feeding his ego constantly so that, because that's what made him happy. Yeah. And I know that that's like a full-time job. Yeah, it really was. Like there's no, there's literally no space for anything else. No. And I, like even with me, like, I even find myself having to like actively not do that with like with Sean in the beginning of my relationship with him. Like I, and with other, with other boyfriends too, I think like it's, it was my 
like tendency or whatever my conditioning I don't know to just like completely always be like heart like hovering and seeing if they need anything and like making sure they're not mad at me and like seeing if they're feeling okay and like what do they need and like out of fear that they're that they're like actually secretly upset or that they're going to be upset or that you know what I mean and did, did, did Sean ever say anything to you about that early on or no but but it kind of like but it was like I was able to not I was able to to see that what I was doing was not necessary right in that situation but with like dad for instance it was necessary so you were you did you feel yourself doing that too growing up with dad yeah everyone's attention was just focused on him all the time on his mood and on on making sure that it didn't get bad you know like everyone's attention was just only focused on that like like it was like superstitious almost like what kind of things do you remember doing toward that just like like it's hard to even describe it because it was so all-encompassing but if there's like a tv show on like making sure to laugh when he's laughing wow you, you remember that right i don't remember laugh laugh when he's laughing i don't remember that you don't remember that no did you ever like well i remember you like always laughing when he was laughing <laughs> see i wasn't even doing it on purpose it just came naturally but you know like not like it's just like the, there's like a, a constant undercurrent of like vigilance always well also the conversation like it was always talking about what we knew he wanted to talk about and would make yeah. him happy and would make him engaged the things that we were doing were out of fear like it, it, we weren't like saying the things that we were saying because we felt like saying them it was like we were saying the things that we were saying to prevent him from getting angry right and we all knew it was it was we all knew what to, you know what he wanted us to say it's interesting, isn't it, Jackie? When with control, they don't have to tell you. Like after a while, you just you do it on your own because you know, and you just you know. But partially, also, you don't always know. Oh yeah, that's true. That's the problem. Like you know that you have to try, but you don't always know exactly what to do, and that's what makes it very anxiety-producing. And then once he was like off the handle, then that was like extremely scary. Then there was no way to control what was happening. Right. Then, then it was abject, like terror and chaos. Well, it's so interesting that you say that, Jackie, because I look upon my relationship with your father, and in my my, my memory, like that absolutely happened when he would turn into there was a Jekyll and Hyde thing, and he would be completely you could not reach him. Yeah, but that that to, in my mind, it really happened until you know 1994 when I called the 911 for the first time, and then thereafter, it never really got as bad as that. But it's interesting that in your mind, it was as bad as that even after that. Well, I mean, I don't know what you're comparing it to. There were many times where something happened, like that like the time when he threw the toothpick yeah when he flicked a toothpick at a restaurant you picked it up and yeah. he, he interpreted that as as a criticism of of his behavior 
mm-hmm. and you had a fight for four days. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, is that not intense? We may have had a fight for four days, but pre nineteen ninety four, he it was four days of him basically like, you know, pulling my hair, kicking me, punching me, calling me the vilest words that you could ever imagine, um, you know. And so that to me, like, I felt like after that he changed and it wasn't so bad. And I, and I even told myself, I'm really glad I weathered that because now I have a person who's, you know, reasonable. Oh my isn't God. That, isn't that weird? I didn't know that. That's horrible. But isn't that interesting that you, that when you just said that, it really surprised me that you, that you, you, you thought of him as beyond, like out of control, like really the scary time when you, when you couldn't control it anymore. Cause I, I didn't, that that was in that realm at that point like to you that was an improvement oh my god it was like yeah like he had like they say people can't change well he did change and you know the love you know all my patience and love and everything made a difference so that he was you know you could live with him that's crazy to me because it felt it seemed like it was impossible when i was there wow see the way I behaved, the extra, uh, the hypervigilance was because I always knew it could be like that because it was for like seven years. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was working overtime and everything in me was trying to keep the peace because I knew it could be like it was before I made the 911 call when he would be an absolute, total, truly a monster, you know? I saw like rage. I saw him, like, break things. What did he break? Well, like, he ripped, like, the cookbook and stuff. Oh, he ripped my cookbook. That's why I have a a gaffer tape on it. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Not exactly normal. To me, like, the biggest thing was just the constant, like high level of fear and you know i was probably like picking up on a lot of your fear right and just always this like threat like a nameless fear that like something terrible could happen to like threaten everybody right and it felt like a life or death fear you were trying to placate him yeah that had like two effects because on one hand, like it was in an effort to like protect everybody. Right. But on the other hand, it kind of like enabled, it enabled and kind of like normalized like the behavior that was so abnormal. When I started growing and becoming more of a woman, I felt very afraid to be in front of dad because I was very aware of what I was wearing all the time. I was very, I was always worried that I was showing my body too much, even if I was wearing a t-shirt because he would make comments. He would say, go change. I felt like I had to actively hide my body because um, sometimes he would tell me I look fat in things. Sometimes he would say, you you know, that I didn't look good in something. Or sometimes he would say that um, something was inappropriate. It was just, there was a, it was a constant commentary on how I looked and um, I had an eating disorder. I don't think that that's accidental. I don't think that that's unrelated. I was very uncomfortable with my body. It was always being scrutinized. 
he, he would make comments all the time, kind of like as a way to upset me on purpose because mm-hmm. he knew that like bait you. He knew that I would it would upset me. You know, like one time I was watching TV and Beyonce was on TV. And I and he said he was like that. Um, women women don't contribute anything to the world. They're what they've contributed amounts to a pamphlet. And I started like howling and crying. I was just so upset because he wouldn't stop saying that kind of, he said that thing and I pushed back a little bit. He kept pushing back harder and harder. Something as small as that could, could like start an attack. We were all sitting down and there was like no extra seat. And dad came over and nobody stood up immediately to give him a seat. And I just said, and I think I said like, well, you can sit over there. Oh my God. And he got so mad at me that it went on for like days. Mm-hmm. And then we were on the, on a plane and he like pulled me out of my seat and st- we were standing in the middle of the aisle. And he was like screaming at me, telling me he was like never going to do anything for me again. Never going to. Like, How ungrateful you were. He wasn't going to like let me go to college. I don't know. Just this escalating and escalating and escalating. It's just, I couldn't, there's nothing I could do to make it stop. I, I was just standing there waiting for it to end. That was what it was like constantly. And just being attacked and screaming and like insults and um, being forced to say things and being forced to do things. And like, God forbid you ever push back a little bit. God forbid you have an opinion. Yeah. Because then it's just like, literally he's going to keep going until you just collapse. And there was a, strong culture of fear in our family. So I was very afraid of him. And I think everyone else was too, which is why nobody ever really backed me up on anything that I did. And um, so anyway, that was, you know, what it was like growing up. He was either not there or he was like tyrannical, screaming and yelling and forcing people to do things. And and just without even screaming and yelling, forcing people to do things because they were afraid that if they didn't do the right thing, then it would cause blow up. So would you say like bully is a good word, wouldn't you say? It's like a tyrant, just a constant state of anxiety and fear, you know? And then I wanted to get out of the house and I went away for college and at that point, um, you know, there was a period of a few years in college where he disowned me and that consisted of daily phone calls where he would keep me on the phone for like hours at a time and yell at me and try to force me to to do what he wanted, which was something specific that I refused to do. And um, every time I came home, he would physically corner me and yell at me for out for for sometimes like an hour and just demand that I agree with what he was saying, demand that I agree to do what he wanted me to do. And I didn't agree to do it. And that's why, uh, 
it, it never stopped. And then. And he was telling you that you were going to ruin the family by not giving into into that. Yeah. And he was telling all of and, us that and you, were you and everyone else in the family agreed with him that I was ruining the family by not giving in to him. So I got that message from everywhere. And then uh, I got married. And that that was kind of the first time where I was out, out of the sphere a little bit more. But even then, every time we came back to visit, it was extremely stressful. And I felt like I had to give all my attention to, and all my time. And I didn't have anything. I wasn't allowed to, to do anything for myself or by myself. Or I even felt like I, had, I was splitting my attention between my partner and my family. is difficult. You are listening to WERU-FM and the show Let's Talk About It, Conversations About Domestic Abuse. I am Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, which can be found at findingourvoices.net. Now, let's return to my conversation with my daughter, Jackie. In a lot of ways, him being a famous musician has made me feel like I can't do music. Like there's no room for me to do it too. And I think growing up, there was that feeling a lot of the time. But you, you, you did music with him growing up. Like on his terms, like a little bit. Oh, like it would be his songs that he wanted to sing. and I'd sing like a little bit on or something like that. But it was never me doing anything by myself. And if, and if I did do something by myself, there was kind of like a mixed message about whether or not that was okay. You know, he never like helped me with anything. There was kind of like that message that I wasn't supposed to do to do that stuff. One time I emailed someone that he worked with to ask. Oh, I remember that. Ask if he had advice for me because I oh wanted God, to. Got so mad. I wanted to learn how to be in theater. Yeah. And I emailed his like agent or something. Yeah. And he got so mad at me. Wow. Like so mad. You know, so I just, I was always getting these messages that like, do not try to step into this territory because this is my territory. I know because it's all about like contacts and here you had a father who had contacts. And so it must've been so frustrating to not be able to have access to any of those at all. Yeah. And he's like withholding all the, all the, any help, you know? And then when I finally did start to do it on my own, it was so difficult. And I was like always feeling frustrated that people would think that I was getting help when really I was like working against so much like inner baggage about being able to do it at all. Mm hmm. So many things would happen when I was younger and I would think like, am I crazy for really thinking this? Like, can it really be possible? You know, like, am I crazy for thinking that he doesn't want me to succeed? Am I crazy for thinking that he wants, he doesn't want me to, to be successful or he doesn't want me to grow or he doesn't want me to like be happy or whatever. And then like, you know, once in a while I'd get these more like explicit confirmations that I was, that what I was feeling wasn't just crazy, you know, it was like real, but it's just so abnormal that you don't expect it to be real. Right. But I think like that is real. He felt threatened by the idea of any, by, of either of us going into that field. Yes. 
and it, and I felt this like pushback the whole way and I kept doing it anyway and like it feels good to be doing it and and to like it feels good to be doing it but I still I still feel like confused sometimes about why he hasn't wanted to ever help at all or even to acknowledge what I'm doing when you used to meet him once a year for your, for the for lunch, did he ever ask you about your music? No, but if he did ask something, it was like in an interrogative kind of way where I felt like he was upset about it. That was a, that was like difficult to feel, just so like I don't know, not to feel supported and and to also feel like someone's actively trying to like push you down. Like it must have been scary to think that someone in the industry is 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 not wanting you to succeed. And it's also your dad. Right. Again, there's like a lot of layers of like complexity where it's just like it would be easy to just turn away from it and not do it at all because it's because it brings up a lot of complicated feelings. But on your next album, you're actually talking about those feelings. Well, I just, it just happened naturally. And like, you know, you were talking about how it took a while to consciously, to even consciously think about the thing. Yeah. That's, that's how it was for me too. It took a long time for me to even feel like I could think about it without being disloyal. When you guys got divorced, that was a huge... a huge time of trauma for me because suddenly he didn't have you to focus on and he decided to make me his focus. And he somehow thought that I was like a proxy to you and that he could get me to, to, to somehow change your mind about getting a divorce. So he would just call me and again, keep me on the phone for like hours and not let me hang up and just be screaming at me the whole time. And um, it really wore me down. Like I started developing a whole bunch of autoimmune disorders and um, my body started like falling apart completely. I think the most traumatic time period for me was, was like ever since your divorce, really. That's been the most traumatic. Wow. The last five years, because anytime, whenever, when the, when our family was still a unit, you were kind of like a buffer. And that's just what is exactly the, you've just hit the nail on the head, Jackie, which is why a lot of women stay right in these families. And I was aware of that. Like I saw what he did, how he destroyed people all around me when they were disloyal or whatever he thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I knew that, that was going to be turned full force on us if that if that if that ever happened. And that's why I was trying so hard to, you know, keep things nice. Right. And so look what look at this, how this the proof of this. So I did end up leaving. Mm -hmm. And that was the worst part for you. That you, was. So that was the worst part. Right. Because even though like even though when I was growing up, I didn't feel explicitly protected. I didn't feel like anyone was stopping him from the abuse that he was leveraging on me verbally and emotionally. 
I still, there was, there was a buffer there in that, like, you know, after I had a huge fight with him, maybe you would go hang out with him and he would like calm down. And, and I did the same thing. Like if you and dad were having a huge fight, why, like I would be partially on alert to see if there was a moment where I could kind of like enter in and like smooth anything out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So everyone was kind of like, I think, on on high alert to try to to try to um, tame mit- the beast. mitigate. You know, tame the beast. Would you say not tame, but like absorb some of the impact mm, for the others? Yeah. So when you guys got divorced, and all of a sudden you were his enemy, and he couldn't talk to you because you had a restraining order, I was the proxy and there was no, nothing to protect me. And I was just the full force of his, like, of his power was just on me. You know, he was calling me all the time. He was text messaging me. He was threatening me. Um, and, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't giving me any money. You know, so he didn't have a lot of leverage um, in practical terms. You know, I, there was nothing that I was depending on him for, but emotionally, I he knew that I wanted his love. And so he would say, like, if you don't do this, I'll never talk to you again. You know, or if you don't do this, I'm not going to like you anymore. Or like, if you don't do this, it was just like, he was leveraging the love that I wanted mm-hmm. from him. You know, he would call me, I would see the, my phone ring and I would, sometimes I would like throw up, I would be shaking and I would have to pick up the phone. Cause if I didn't pick it up, I knew that he'd be mad, madder at me the next time he called. Cause one time you would advise me when he was doing that to me to, after I left him to, to block his calls, but you never thought about blocking his calls. Well, part of the reason why I didn't, I, there are two reasons why I didn't feel like I could do that. One is because I genuinely felt bad for him. I genuinely sympathized. Like I genuinely, my emotions were being manipulated and I genuinely felt like he was suffering. And even though he was being cruel to me, I thought to myself, well, he must be really suffering if he's being this cruel to me. So mm. I need, I, it, I really, he really does need my help somehow. And then, but then on the other hand, I felt that if I didn't have an indication of how he was feeling, then I would be more in danger. I had these fears. I don't know if they were valid, you know, cause I was going through such a mental, literally like a mental breakdown mental, emotional breakdown, but I had these fears that he would like show up at my house and like shoot me. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I was just, I was terrified. I was like scared for my life. Like I, I didn't know what he was going to do. You know, I didn't know like if I was in danger, I didn't want him to know where I lived. We moved. I didn't tell him my new address. Like I just, I was very much afraid and, um, everything felt scary and chaotic and dangerous and because he was being so unsta- acting so unstable or because he was so full of rage 
And I was the one person that he was kind of like honed in on. Yeah. It felt, I mean, I'm sure you know what that's like. Right. To be the one target right. of all of his rage. Right. That's what the situation was. And I was terrified. I was in a, and I was in a constant state of terror for probably like four years, five years, like a high level of terror, more than just the high anxiety that I've had for my whole life. It was like high octane. That's the reason why it took me a very long time to, because, to and, cut and, ties. And, and so this is interesting because, because I was afraid that if I, that if I didn't have access to him, that I'd be, he'd actually hate me even more. Because it's like when I'm in contact with him, I feel that he hates me, but he's still asking for my help. So there's something there that's a connection. He needs me for something. Mm-hmm. If I alienate him completely and he has no use for me anymore, then he's I'm going to be in more danger. So it's so, so interesting because it's the same dynamic that when I was married to him and raising my family in that home, I felt that I was keeping everybody safer by staying there. And then when I left, then it was all on you. And you felt you had the same feeling that you had to stay in it because you were, you were it was more dangerous for you to get out of it. Yeah, because that was the unknown. I didn't, at least when I was in it, I could monitor and know what was happening. Right. And if I wasn't connected to him in some way, then... I could be surprised and that that's scary. Right. So what would the lesson be? Because would that be, what is the lesson from that? Like, but you, but you're glad that you got out. Well, it was a really long process. So there was that time period where he was very much fixated on me and trying to bully me into doing whatever he asked me to do. And, um, you know, that that evolved into a situation where then he withdrew because because by then he knew that I was not going to go back. The to divorce him. became final. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, and you know that intensity tapered off, and he withdrew, and then and then it was a situation where I was trying to get his attention. And he, he had no use for you at that and point. And he didn't want to have a rela- relationship with me anymore. And I was in this situation that I'd never been in before where I was suddenly not being, you know, targeted by him in, in any way. Not being acknowledged. Not, but, yes. And I was kind of robbed of my own, like, chance to, to do any, anything on my terms. You know, all of a sudden it was like he went MIA. He completely withdrew. And um, then I felt abandoned. And did he did he make it clear that he didn't care about having a relationship with you? Yeah, he made it clear that he didn't want to have a relationship. He said it explicitly. He didn't want to have a relationship with me. He didn't see me as his daughter. He had a better life and he was happier without me involved. I felt in general... Um, worthless and like honestly like my life was worthless mm. and like I there was no purpose for me because that, that, that's weird because I the last year when 
I was trying, you know, he was having this affair and um, he was barraging me with these messages and I was ignoring them, right? Because then I sort of had the upper hand to some degree right Mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. And then when he stopped, Mm -hmm. that's what you're describing is exactly how I felt. Like when he he stopped cold and he stopped trying to get in touch with me, Mm -hmm. like that was my lowest point. I think, yes. And I think it's because in some way, when you grow up in an abusive environment or when you're, when you're indoctrinated into an abusive environment, you, so you, you align abuse with love because it's attention, mm-hmm. even if it's negative attention, even if it's painful, even if it's, um, causes you anxiety and fear and it's high intensity. Right. And it, you that's attention. love yeah. in your brain. You connect those things because you, you don't feel actual love. You feel, um, you feel abuse, but, but that's the substitute. So when that's, when every, when all the contact is completely removed, then you feel like love has been withdrawn and you feel like, um, you know, like complete emptiness, right? Yeah. Like that's what it was for me. It was like a black void. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was so scary. Yeah. Because so much of your attention and time has been devoted to trying to keep that there. Right. And trying to manage and trying to placate and trying it's, to... It fills a huge space right. in your life. In your mind, in your psyche, everything. You build around it. Right. You know, it's almost like a tumor or something. I know, it's really it's true. It develops its own like, vascular system. It's just... It's true. And I don't know, it's just... I don't know. It's weird. It's also interesting because during that time when the, the few years when he was extremely, extremely focused on, on me, I, I had another really bad bout of OCD. Mm-hmm. And, um, part of it was obsessive thoughts. And one of them was that I had cancer. I remember that constantly. I thought, I thought I you were dying. Different kinds of cancers. Oh my gosh! The and then we're talking about the the, the the tumor with the vascular system. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's, it is weird. And and that all stopped finally when I when I stopped having contact with him. Wow. But um. But yeah, it it takes up so much of your of your life. And so. Um, So yeah, he stopped caring to have a relationship. And for a while I was really trying hard to have one with him, even though he didn't want to anymore. And it was just rejection after rejection? Just constant rejection, constant, constant explicit rejection. You know, I would send him a message and say like, would it be possible for us to see each other this summer? And he'd say, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no, I, I will not be doing that. You know, it was just cold, um, abject rejection over and over and over again. And I still thought that maybe if I like debased myself enough, he would, it would be enough for him and he would want to like have me in his life. He, he didn't hit me physically, but it felt like he was constantly beating me up. Right. And I was just laying down and right. taking it and waiting for it to stop and hoping that if I, if I took enough abuse that he would stop and right. he would love me. Isn't it interesting, though, that, like, you can be in a relationship with somebody who is so abusive for that long, and then, like, you don't, you're not actually 
able to consciously admit to yourself that it's abusive. How did you escape that relationship? How did you get beyond it? How did you get out of it? How did you get free? Well, I think that the truthful answer is that I really wanted to have a relationship with him. And I really tried like to my own detriment over and over and over. And um, I think it was a combination of just having it be so one-sided where um, it was just like hitting up against a brick wall over and over again and like only receiving abuse in return. And I really like abused myself for like many years, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result basically. And then, um, and you know, there would be periods where he would be really nice. And then that would kind of like bring me back if I was pulling away, I would have hope you know, that like something was different. And then as soon as I kind of like opened myself up again, the cycle would just repeat. I just remember he was sending me these text messages that were just really, really abusive and like a tirade through text message. I was like laying on the floor and crying and just like, I couldn't move. And my kids were in the house and I was just realizing for a second, like, this is not normal. And I don't want my children to see this. I don't want them to see me being abused. And I don't want them to see how upset I am and how destroyed I feel. And that was kind of the first time that I like, where something kind of an awareness kind of like entered my head where I was like, I can't keep doing this. I kind of like pulled away and then, um, and then like six months later or something, I tried, I tried to reach out again. That was kind of my, my pattern that I was always doing. But in, but when I reached out again after like months of having pulled away um he just like went right back into being abusive and I think before I might have really internalized that and taken that as evidence that I was wrong and taken that as evidence that I needed to try harder and taken that as evidence that I was deficient and that I was not good enough and not you know, that I was unworthy of his attention and love and everything like that. But this time, because those kind of like six intervening months had been different for me, since I had sort of had an awareness during that time, I didn't react in the same way. And I defended myself. So I defended myself. And I actually responded back to him telling him that pointing out that what he was doing was abusive and pointing out, you know, that what he had been doing was abusive and pointing out that 
you know, he didn't have control over me anymore and that I wasn't going to accept this treatment. And, and, and for me, like being able to say all those things out loud, really like pierced the mirage that I had been kind of living in, like the, the fantasy world that I had been living in too, where I was kind of imagining that like, um, that what he was doing was somehow acceptable because it was to me and I deserved it somehow. And it just kind of, I brought everything into the light by identifying it and telling him that it wasn't okay. And, and that just felt like a vanquishing moment for me. And, um, once I kind of like called him out directly, the manipulation couldn't continue. And then I kind of, it was, it was obvious that there was no relationship at all, aside from the manipulation. That was probably seven months ago. And since then, I feel like a new person. Standing up and basically like hitting back. And you being the one to end it. Yeah. Really. Standing up, yeah. hitting back and walking away. Like felt like I restored a sense of my own dignity, not being afraid anymore, not feeling like I had to erase myself in order to exist. You know, it was really like doing that. It was empowering. Was this, well, it was the scariest thing I've ever done. It's so hard to do it. And then once you do it, you realize that, um, that was all you needed to do for it to be over. Yeah. Like I was thinking, at least for me. Yeah. For me too. Like I never, never, never thought I could leave. I just never thought it was possible. Right. Same. I never thought it would be possible. Basically what it felt like was it felt like jumping off of a very high building and then like a net came down and caught me and I didn't expect that to happen. Was it, was it, at first, I remember when I first started talking about it, I was feel like looking around, like, am I really doing this? Like, am I, am I allowed to do this? Did yeah. you get that feeling too? Oh yeah. It, it definitely felt like something transgressive. Like I wasn't, that was like a taboo thing. Right. Cause, Cause even, like I said, even sharing a message that he had sent me felt forbidden. And, you know, even my friends that I've known for my whole life, like I hadn't shown them like messages. You know, you felt the shame. Yeah, I felt shame. I felt like it was on you. Like it, like they would think it was my fault or something. That it, that they would, that if I, if they knew how, what terrible things he said to me all the time, that they would maybe see that I was deserving of it. So, did breaking the silence get rid of the shame? Would you say? Yeah, it really. I was able to cast off a dark cloud that's always been over me I just had this feeling my whole life like that I was waiting 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 that it wasn't really hadn't started yet you know what something needed to change I always wondered what it was like do I have to move somewhere do I have to change something about myself like when can I feel like my life is starting and and then um I vanquished a vampire that had been sucking out my lifeblood and suddenly it felt like a brand new day I, I cut off contact when I was 30. Um, and I feel at 30 years old is when I started my life.
You were listening to my conversation with Jackie Strack, a.k.a. the singer-songwriter Roan Yellowthorn, whose song, I'm Enough, is the soundtrack to this radio show. And if what we were talking about sounds familiar, if you or someone you love is being bullied and controlled by a family member, say something. The main domestic abuse hotline is one 866 help and there is a domestic abuse agency near you with advocates who understand it and believe you that you can find on the website of the main coalition to end domestic violence mcedv.org and if you want to connect with survivors more than 40 of us telling our stories are at findingourvoices.net the website of our survivor-based, main-based, non-profit organization, Finding Our Voices. Join us again on WERU the second Friday of every month at 4 p.m. And remember, especially with Valentine's Day coming, love should feel good. Good.